Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So you could you could make a chamber opera, maybe even a grand opera out of this. I mean, you start in 1978 and the Civic Center roof falls in uh, and then they rebuild the Civic Center and then they have a chance to have a major piece of public art in that space. And there's a committee and there's a screening process and some of the most famous living American artists are finalists and then they pick as they should, as one might hope they would, they pick a man who was born in Hartford, who is a titanic figure in the world of art, uh, a person who has set the tone, has been, been an influencer of multiple generations internationally of artists, and happens to have been born in Hartford. And his work is going to go into that space. And then the city fathers rise up and the local newspaper rises up and then people start writing letters because they don't like the work. They don't they don't they, they don't like it. And it bothers them that so much money is going to be spent on it. That's Saul Lewitt that we're talking about. And of course, that story was preceded by the installation of Carl Andre's 36 Boulders Stonefield sculpture in downtown Hartford, which I think got eighty five thousand dollars. And that bothered people. Too And people are saying too much money is being spent on this stuff that doesn't look like art to us. Eventually, Saul LeWitt, this titanic figure, just walks away. He walks away from being memorialized in a public building in his native city because they just don't get it. And instead, Romare Bearden's work goes up. I mean, Romare Bearden's no slouch. It goes up in the Hartford Civic Center. And then... I don't know how many years go by, like 28 years go by or something like that. And they forget that it's a Romare Bearden. They are so close to taking these two panels and throwing them on a pile somewhere because they're renovating the XL Center and they don't know it's by an important artist. And then so that's 2014. A year after that, some crews are working near the Stonefield sculptures. They're getting some uh, utility lines marked and they just take that high-vis orange paint and they spray lines on Carl. Andre's boulders. So really, you've got, and you know, and then of course you have like a really horrible, terrible, heartbreaking death story that goes along with this. All of that, it could be an opera. And if somebody wrote that opera, it would be Larry Bloom. <laughs> Instead of writing an opera, he wrote a biography of Saul Lewitt, a very much needed one, Saul Lewitt, A Life of Ideas. David Arford is here with me, an associate professor of art history at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. So Larry, I'm going to just begin with you, but I'm also going to get David involved pretty quickly to sort of remind people what this work is. But for you, it started not so much with an artist. It started with a person you already knew, had known for decades. Yeah, that's quite an advantage for a biographer to know the subject. And so I, I used to go to a studio once a month or so. I'd sit with him and we'd talk, but we wouldn't talk about art. We talked about life. We talked about philosophy. We talked about history, politics, music, the, All the, the things the that Cleveland, loved. the Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Indians. Well, both of know, which you have a benighted passion for. Yeah, this is it. We were the two Cleveland Indians uh, fans, and uh, that was our relationship. But also, every once in a while, of course, we did talk about art. 
And that's kind of the weave of the book. The weave of the book was that, you know, art and life, I mean, his, his idea was that art and life can't be separated. They have to be together. Sounds that's like a Sondheim song to yeah. me, <laughs> um, to say one of your other passions. So, David Arford, this work is often hard for people to grasp, hard for people to understand. It's hard sometimes visually for them to see the work and understand what's being done. And then when they find out that in many cases the art is not executed by the artist's hand, but is a set of instructions given to other people, other artists who are going to use their hands to make the art, that's an even harder mind wraparound. So, I don't know, place Saw Lewitt for people who don't even really now have a visual image of his work. Help people get what we're talking about. Okay. A lot of questions, a lot to think about, and especially this theme of connecting art and life, because that was really crucial to his work, though in many ways he did his best to separate his life from his art. I mean, Solowit was, without exaggeration, a pioneer of minimalist art and conceptual art. He preferred the term conceptual art, and he was really articulate about his goals. He wrote two manifesto-like texts, paragraphs on conceptual art in 1967, sentences on conceptual art in 1969, where he laid out his agenda for his artistic practice. In paragraphs on conceptual art, he says, in conceptual art, the idea or concept is the most important aspect of the work. When an artist uses a conceptual form of art, it means that all the planning, all the decisions are made beforehand and the execution is a perfunctory affair, his words. Mm -hmm. And the next sentence is the most quoted. The idea becomes a machine that makes the art. So for him, conceptual art was about all of this planning, using systems and a serial approach, and removing himself at that point so the work could be made and could exist in the world outside of his own personality, his own emotional life, etc., And I find this work is incredibly generous. It's abstract, and yet it's visually captivating, spatially captivating. It leaves lots of room for the viewer. And I think that's what people are confused by. Mm -hmm. Often people think, oh, gosh, this is so simple. It's just simple lines or geometric forms. And Mm -hmm. he definitely wanted to pare down the language of art to its essentials. It kind of fits in with what was going on almost simultaneously with literary criticism, too. Another Bloom gets involved there, and that would be Harold Bloom, but that notion that what the reader brings to text begins to shape the text in a way. Hilary, you put it, I think, really beautifully in the book. I mean, you talk about how that Lewitt shifted the focus from the artist's hand to the artist's mind, uh, and in so doing, really began to change the way that art was practiced and understood. Sure, the hand was always the... The measure of the artist, the idea, if you could draw a tree with snow caps on it or something like that, you were an artist. And that's how it was for centuries. Now the brain takes over the idea. Uh, One of the things he did was uh, these uh, incomplete cubes in which he really asks the viewer to complete the cube in the viewer's mind. So it becomes part of the audience. And I I would go back to David's point about the uh, question of... uh, of handing it over to assistants. The way I usually put it is that it's almost like a composer giving the music to the orchestra or the architect giving the plans to the builder. And then the builder adds touches that are maybe missing from the, or the orchestra adds color that 
is maybe missing from the score, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and each performance mm, is different. Is different. Yeah. Yes. So this idea of assistants or technicians or artists or whatever we're going to call these people uh, who who help create this art, who supply the hand on the pencil or the or the brush. Let's hear from one of them. So Carrie Smith, an artist based in Farmington, Connecticut, was one of those people. Let's hear what that was like. One of the most interesting experiences of that, probably about a two-month run there, I think Andrea Miller-Keller was was creating a um, LeWitt retrospective and hired some artists in the area to come draw the drawings. And one of the directions, Saul was in Italy at the time, or, or for a certain part of this, and one of the directions was about creating this diagonal rectangle on a wall, sort of in the middle of the wall, and there were a bunch of, like a paragraph of sentences that described how you would get to placing that diagonal rectangle on the wall properly. And they couldn't figure out from his directions, and there was no way to get a hold of him. And so we took it home to my wife Nina's father, who at the time was a, he had been a math teacher at Miss Porter's school. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the directions and he said, which I found very funny, he said, um, yeah, I, I see that his secretary left out one word. And he knew what that word should be. So they had him come in and draw the drawing on the wall mm-hmm. correctly. <laughs> um, and But drawing those drawings was interesting. I knew he was an important artist. I hadn't really studied him at that point, And I wasn't actually all that interested in his work. But I wanted to take that job because I wanted to be closer to an important artist and just kind of catch the vibe. And we worked very closely on doing these Again, there there was kind of a quality of like a math teacher doing a math problem on, on a blackboard to a lot of what was going on. So they would take pencil leads, for example. You can buy just the lead itself, and they would have us tape them together after we sharpened them individually. And then there would be in groups of three, four, or five, I, as I remember vaguely. And they'd create this flat group of pencil leads where the tips were all at the same level of height. And then we would take a ruler and draw five very fine pencil lines next to the next group. And then the pencil leads would go back to the table where people sharpen them and tape them together. And he, with that drawing, it was using the primaries, red, blue, yellow, and black. And these lines that we were drawing, it was a very large and complicated piece that was extremely delicate at the same time. And that the, the lines went vertically, horizontally, diagonally in both directions. So basically uh, what he was doing was breaking down things into their very primal form. You know, when you go to art school, often they'll have you draw cones and cylinders and spheres to get to know shading having to do with what exists out in the world. And it's kind of like he was doing something like that as well. All right. I, I think we one thing we need to talk about right now, and I, I should lay my cards on the table. First of all, my ragged little tail gets dragged through this story at one point, and we'll be telling that story in, in a little while. But I'm probably pretty typical of the people who care about art, but I'm nothing like a connoisseur. And for the most part, I don't get Lewitt. But I did have one kind of epiphanic moment, but I don't want to talk about that. Larry, I want to talk about your epiphanic moment, which happened in Italy, which is a better place to have an epiphanic uh, moment. And so you really did have a a rapturous experience suddenly looking at a Lewitt. Tell us about that. Oh, this started, the story uh, story starts in uh, in Sal's studio in 2005. 
and uh, uh, that's where we had many of our discussions. Although we also talked during Passover when he he played God at, at the Seder, mm-hmm. which is you know that sort of thing. And I saw a new pencil sketch, and I said, uh, "Gee, what's that? I haven't seen that before." He said, "Well, that's for our work in Italy that's going to go up, and it's an, uh, uh, Red- Reggio Emilia, the uh, the public library there, the reading room." And I said, oh, that'll make a beautiful wall drawing. He said, no, no, that, that, that's going on the ceiling. And I said, oh, Italy, ceiling, oh, that's interesting. And uh, I think somebody did that before. I can't remember <laughs> who. And, uh, um, and he said, well, you're going to Italy in the fall, aren't you? And maybe you'll see it. And, of course, I didn't really think much about it hmm. at that point. But, you know, we got there, and in Reggio Emilia, we went into the library there and to the reading room and saw this gorgeous piece above the reading room. And here's the, there's a point to this story, so not always uh, have a point, but I have a point in this case, uh, which was at that moment, I'm, you know, I feel very emotional here. And I realize that I have seen the finished work of this artist before the artist has seen it. Mm-hmm. That is to say, he didn't go right. until November, yeah. until a month later. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, I've seen a lot of strange things in my life, but to be in the middle of this was, I've got to write about it. And, you know, if you get a religious moment like that, it just adds to the momentum, the idea of uh, of spending 11 years on a biography, which is uh, a, not a good business plan, but, you know, a very enriching idea. You know, I, I think also, what David, what you said before, I think is so interesting and it's so helpful to me, and I hope it'll be helpful to some of our listeners too, that idea of leaving space for the viewer. Um, that that So the one time that I had an epiphanic moment, and it's nowhere near as colorful as Larry's, and the food isn't as good either, but um, I was at MoMA, and I was actually looking at a Giacometti sculpture exhibit, a temporary sculpture exhibit that they had up. So you've got these kind of gnarled, skinny, you know, Giacometti characters. And there was a Lewitt, like, on the wall right behind it. And as I turned away from the sculptures and I saw the Lewitt, I did have this kind of almost explosive moment where I thought, aha, that's what that's all about. Unfortunately, I couldn't hold on to it, but it had something to do with, I was looking at another thing that was probably a little bit more intrusive on my space, the Giacometti's, and then I looked over there and there was something going on that was very exciting at that moment. And also, um, it so much has to do with the kind of art that LeWitt and his generation were responding to. Mm-hmm. You know, he arrived in 1954, 53, 54 in New York at the height of the popularity of abstract expressionism, which definitely like Giacometti is all about individual artists expressing their emotional lives, their particular vision of the world and working in a signature style that's all their own. So when you turned away from the Giacometti and looked at the Lewitt, what was being freed up is definitely a space for you as a viewer. It's not all about the the way Giacometti manipulated the material to make the work or his uh, strangely uh, bleak vision of the human body and uh, uh, kind of existentialist vision. Lewitt was determined to create work that emptied out. It was not about him. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he he didn't like – he talked about this. He didn't want to be an art personality. He avoided having his picture taken. He often didn't like showing up at his own openings because um, you know when he emerged as an artist in the mid-60s, 
you know, there was someone like Andy Warhol who was an art star. And it mm-hmm. was all about, to a certain degree, his persona. And LeWitt avoided that. So that's something I really appreciate because when you're looking at his work, yes, it's incredibly simple. It's incredibly refined and focused. But then it becomes more and more complex the more you engage with it. You know, uh, I'm thinking about a, a scene in Amsterdam at the Stedelijk Museum uh, in a gallery that's devoted to one particular wall drawing and watching people come in and seeing it for the first time. And a, a little girl comes in. She must have been four years old. She sees this wall and she gasps and she screams and she covers her mouth and she calls for her parents. And it made me think of a lot of things. You know, here's a child who, you know, who, what, who knows what she knows about art at this point, but she knows what she sees and it affects her so deeply she can't help. And at some point in our lives, I guess we're told that you know, if it doesn't look like a tree or a cloud or a or a, a know, hat fit in the lines or somehow it's not art, you know. But to see this child in just this state of awe. Let's go back to our friend Kerry Smith yeah. for just a second. Now I see him as a very important beacon within the art world. He stands alone in a kind of, in my opinion, egoless manner that is very useful as a signpost. And his work has a mathematical kind of element, and it has a very inventive, and the quality of his inventions are part of what makes a great artist, in my opinion. And he's extremely important, but he's not for everybody. When you look at his work, there's this straightforward, I like to think of it as like a center fielder, just this almost nondescript place that he inhabited and therefore acted as as a reflecting board to all other artists. <clears throat> it's my I imagine that if Picasso was working on one of his paintings and was using a particular orange, he needed this orange in this painting that had a group of other colors and he thought this orange would create a, a strong life energy. He would he would mix that orange until he got it exactly as he felt it needed to be by maybe mixing a little blue in the orange and and a little yellow or whatever. Whereas Saul, I think of more as he would look at different oranges, select the one that was, again, this straightforward kind of orange, orange, and use that and then use it again and again. All right. So, um, you know, we talk about this man who who in so many ways had tried to take uh, a lot of the ego out of being a, an artist. Uh, and yet, I think here in Hartford, Connecticut, the place of his birth, his humility uh, was maybe tested as badly as you can you can do that. And so we, we do want to tell a little bit of this story. It's not a particularly happy story. Uh, but Andrea Miller Keller is going to join us in just a second. Uh, but let me set it up again. Uh, once again, the Civic Center roof collapsed. So there was uh, money and effort to uh, rebuild this building after this incredible disaster. Fortunately, nobody's hurt. Nobody's killed. It's unoccupied when it crashes in. But now you're going to rebuild. 
And you're going to have room for a piece of public art. Uh, And so what piece of public art should it be? And after a process has taken place, uh, Lewitt, a native son, and as we say, this towering figure, uh, is chosen uh, to execute this piece of art. So, uh, Andrea Miller-Keller, explain what happened then. How how come Saul Lewitt didn't wind up in the Hartford Civic Center? Well, um, You know, he grew up in Hartford and had a a deep affection for the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. And when all of this commotion took place, which was extraordinary, because he was already, you know, recognized worldwide, but Hartford had uh, the general population understandably didn't under understand or know that, although we made our made a best effort to convey to them how important he was. Um, He just simply was uh, hurt and offended by this kind of rejection. And instead of sort of hanging in and showing them how beautiful this could be, um, I think it broke his heart and mine. Um, He withdrew. Do you remember the... And that was um, a a shocking and sad um, turn of events. Yes. Do you remember anything he said at that time? Uh, no, and I will. I would uh, indicate to all listeners that he was a man of very few words. <laughs> yeah, I believe Larry, who's here, uh, can confirm that. Well, Andrea Miller Keller, thank you so much for sharing. We're going to continue that story on the other side of this break. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of David uh, and Larry and Carrie and other people whose names rhyme with Larry and Carrie. Financing art is easy. I think you ought to talk seriously about Financing this. Financing it is not. Why take chances? A vision's just a vision if it's only in your head. Nobody respects your artistic integrity more than I do. If no one gets to hear it, it's as good as dead. You have to think about your career. It has to come to life. Dear Eva, April 14th. Almost a month since you wrote to me and you have possibly forgotten your state of mind. I doubt it, though. Seem the same as always, and being you, hate every minute of it. Don't. Learn to say you to the world every once in a while. You have every right to. Just stop thinking, worrying, looking over your shoulder, wondering, doubting, fearing, hurting, hoping for some easy way out. Struggling, grasping, confusing, itching, scratching, mumbling, bumbling, grumbling, humbling, stumbling, numbling, rambling, gambling, tumbling, scumbling, scrambling, hitching, hatching, pitching, moaning, groaning, honing, boning, horse spinning, hair splitting, nitpicking, piss trickling, nose sticking, ass gouging, eyeball poking, finger pointing, alleyway sneaking, long waiting, small stepping, evil eyeing, back scratching, searching, perching, besmirching, grinding, grinding, grinding away at yourself. Stop it and just do. So that's Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, and well, David Arford, what, what is uh, what is Benedict Cumberbatch reading or performing there? That's one of the most famous letters from one artist to another in art history. Solowit was writing to his dear friend Eva Hesse, 
And at a point when she was in Germany with her husband at the time and uh, was really faltering in her work, what an amazing statement of encouragement. I think his, you know, his relationship with Hess has been explored recently in two fine projects, the most recent one, Irrational Judgments, a great book by Kirsten Swenson and an exhibition called Converging Lines by Veronica Roberts. And he was very open to the influence of other artists, especially the people around him, and he was very encouraging of female artists. This is something that many people have pointed out. Mm -hmm. Saul was a true feminist, so much so that in the catalog for his 1978 exhibition at MoMA, he actually inserted a caption, not about himself, but about the state of female artists and a kind of a calling out the, the art establishment about the fact that female artists struggled so much to get their work recognized. You know, um, you know, Larry yeah, Bloom, yeah. Uh, that's David Arford, by the way, who's an associate professor of uh, art history at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. One of the things that emerges, Larry, I think, to me, is the, the paradoxes of this man. So in a lot of ways, he's sort of unprepossessing. He's sort of retiring. You could even maybe say he's a little bit nebbishy. But he's also so punk rock that he would write this letter, which, by the way, you'll hear later, got turned into a punk rock song. There's like both of those creatures in there, right? You bet. And uh, one of the problems with a biographer, and well, of course, there are many advantages to writing a book about someone who, who has not had a biography written about him. He's one of the last of the great artists of the 20th century who, is, who had not had a biography. And he... I saw all the contradictions. Uh, part of it was uh, his 70th birthday party in uh, in 1998 at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, where you know it's a story I tell in the book about about his shying away from personal publicity, and yet I wrote about it, and I thought I should call him and tell him I'm writing about it, and I did. I said I wrote a piece about this uh, private affair. And uh, he said, as I imagined he would, why? <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, like a child, because, uh, because. Uh, and then I said something like, well, I had an instinct to, to do this. And he said, do you always follow your instincts? Mm -hmm. And then realizing how odd that sounded for an artist, he said, well, if, you're, if, you, if you've written it, I should at least read it. So I took it over to his studio, and he was gracious, and he said, I, he'll read it, and it back to me. Then I went off on a congregational trip with the synagogue to Israel. I remember sitting in the hotel lobby in Jerusalem, and a rabbi was there, Doug Sagel, and uh, I told him the whole story. He's a private man. He's, you know, he's a great artist. I have this piece about what happened at the Athenaeum, a really, really amazing night where he kind of ruined his own party by deflecting any any tribute to himself. Worse than that, really. You're yeah. underselling. I'm underselling. How yeah. sideways this dinner party goes. It, it was a it disaster. It is like the worst birthday party ever by for a famous artist. Yeah, they had the plan not to tell him about it because if they told him about it, he wouldn't come. But it, it somehow seeped out that morning. One of the kids told him. He came, he was in a foul mood, he smiled a lot, but when people started giving speeches, he shut them down. And Andrea, I know she's listening now, she'll remember that she got up to make a speech, a tribute, and as she was getting up to the podium, Saul called her over and said, what do you got there? And she had her speech written out. 
And he says, let me see it. And he, she, she gave it to him, and he looked at it, and he said, well, I put it in my pocket. I'll read it later. Thank you. <laughs> Sit down. So you know? I just want to sort of help locate us a little bit. So Larry's talking about he's in Israel with a trip with his synagogue. That is a synagogue not too far from where Saul and Larry lived, where um, which Solowit helped to design. There's Solowit in the in the body and altar of this uh, synagogue. Yeah. And the rabbi is David Sagel, who's the more famous yeah. of the two brothers. His brother Peter has been just kicking around public radio trying to find himself for years. Yeah. So you're there. You ask your rabbi, well, what do I do about this? I've got this great story. I could publish it, but then he's a guy who doesn't like to be published about. Yeah. So Doug Sagel says he looks out the window. I remember he's, we're looking at some site in Jerusalem. He scratches his head and he looks out the window and scratches his head just the way rabbis do. Mm-hmm. And he pauses and he looks at me and he says, maybe you will publish this story when the time comes. Mm-hmm. And I knew what he meant, mm-hmm. you know, just be patient, there will be, you know, so forth. Yeah. So I go back to Connecticut, and I, uh, I see Saul at the synagogue in Chester, and he said to me, you know, are you going to run that piece that you wrote about me? I said, no, no, Saul, I'm not going to. And he said, why not? I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and, and so there's that, the paradoxes. Yeah, there so are the, the paradoxes. Anything, any assumption you make about him. You, yes, you do. And uh, oh, by the way, I wonder, while I'm thinking about it, I want to add one thing about the Benedict Cumberbatch. and the, and the, uh, He did not uh, go on with that second half of that letter. Second half of that letter is very powerful, important part of that letter. And he said something. Saul said something to Eva. And this, this, and this is what he said to women. But he, this is what he said to her. He said, Eva, you belong to the most secret part of you. And this was a really powerful message because people, kids are taught to, you know, to fit in. Mm. We're all, we all yearn to fit in. Right. And his message to her and to the other women who were in the, in the arts was, you know, you do it, you do it according to your heart and to, What's ever inside of you, and this was a this was really a powerful message. And he and it, this goes back by the actually way. in defense of Benedict Cumberbatch, he does do the whole letter. He just gets applause at that point. Oh. So we stopped him. You know, I, I David, I just want to say also one thing we should say about that letter is, it, as you said, it's one of the most famous artist to artist letters of all time. And it's as I understand it, turned into something of a a cri de cour for artists to to remind each other of when somebody. It's like Rilke's letters to a young poet or something. Like you're feeling all jammed up, you're feeling like you're going nowhere, you're not doing anything, uh, you might just cite to your f- friend who who's an artist who feels that way, at least the learn to say F you to the world and just to remind, right? Right. And also, you know, as he says in the letter, don't be afraid to make some ugly art. Right. You know, mm-hmm. just make something and don't be afraid to fail. And I think that was something he demonstrated in his work. He wasn't always happy with the results of his sets of instructions and he would arrive after things had been installed, for instance, wall drawings, and find they weren't quite what he had imagined. But he actually liked that risk-taking. Yeah. I, I don't know if we have it in any of the Carrie Smith clips, but oh, it's, it's an S4. Let's just play it instead of having me babble through it. And at the end of making those drawings, he gave everybody a little gouache, which at that time was a um, isometric form, sort of like a three-dimensional, like an ice cube drawn in grays and black 
what I found was that when you're young, at least in my case, I was passionate about making art, but I really didn't have much of an idea about much, quite frankly. And so I knew that when I would walk by an antique booth at, let's say, a fair in a field and see an old game board, that I'd look at it and I'd have this desire to own it. And it spoke to me. And I'd make the work I was making at the time and and look at it, and it didn't speak to me the way that the game board did. And so then I started to think about these isometric forms that Saul had given to us and and felt like he had removed something. He had removed the need to be emotionally deep all the time. And I, I do believe he was an emotionally deep artist. I just think that he sacrificed the need to be that way all the time. And I started to experiment with that. And all of a sudden, I started liking my work more, where I removed that need. Right. So Kerry uh, talks about like, he'd have these boards up around the house, and he realized he liked them better, these checkerboards, these antique game boards, more than he liked the work that he was doing. And I think, David, that gets to a point that you're making, too, which is, and I I think, Larry, for all of us who try to create anything, I I say this all the time around here, if, if you don't not like some of the stuff that you do, if you're not constantly saying, wow, what if that's just a big ball of crap and like I'm just wasting my life because it's not any good, then you're probably not going to be any good if you never ask that question. Right. And uh, one of the things that, that struck me the deeper I got into this, we talked just a few minutes ago about that terrible disappointment, that deep disappointment he had, a sense of betrayal from his hometown in, in 1980. But... He also showed how he got over stuff like that mm-hmm. and how he kept pressing and pressing and pressing that the idea of obstacle and rejection and disappointment is part of life and you better learn to deal with it. No matter what you do, just keep pressing. You know, he used to say, you know, kick yourself in the certain part of the body that whenever I would be depressed about a rejection or something like that, just keep going, mm-hmm. just keep going. And that's, in other words, the same advice he gave to Eva. Right. David, I want to get at one more thing before we go to a break here. And that is, I think one thing that emerges in Larry's book is, so here's this guy, what's he the most prominently associated with? Probably the idea of conceptual art. So that's implicitly cerebral. What was surprising to me was how down to earth he was about a lot of this stuff. Like there's a scene in Larry's book where his massage therapist, I think, is asking him for some work that can be auctioned off on behalf of some good cause. And she finally she gets the work from him and she goes, well, do you hang it vertically or or horizontally? And he says, whoever buys it, they'll decide how they're going to hang it. And there's a lot of quotes like that. There's like this sense of don't take yourself too ethereally anyway, you know, don't put yourself up on Olympus. This is, you know, something that other people are going to make something out of. Right. And that also fits in with his overall goal of giving up control. Mm -hmm. So he talked about many times that you can't control the experience that the viewer will have with the work of art once it's out there in the world. And I think he delighted in that because, right, you can hang in any way you want. Why wouldn't you? And you can engage with it in any way that you want. And those different levels of engagement are key to the experience of LeWitt. It could be like the child we mentioned earlier that's just, wow, look at that. Or it can be something touching and even even emotional, I think. And that's something that you get in certain wall drawings. All right. We're going to grab a little break. So I told you, saw LeWitt. He was punk rock. This is how punk rock he was. Once in a while, you had- 
in confusion, itching, scratching, mumbling, 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 stumbling, mumbling, mumbling. Could you say oh, to the world? I was going to position myself as a negative conceptualist in the sense that my art is all ideas I refuse to tell anybody about, but somehow I suspect somebody's already done that. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McDiaperpants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mandy Patankin. And now, back to Colin. All right, let's get right back to it with Larry Bloom. You know, one thing, I, I don't want to end this show without saying this or getting you to say it, Larry, you know, because one thing I think that I take away from this book is if you're, I don't know, in your early 20s and it just kind of feels like your life isn't really going the way you want it to go and you don't even really know what you should be doing exactly and maybe you weren't like the greatest student in college and maybe even people who knew you during your four years in college would refer to you as a non-entity while you were there, you know, you just haven't really made your mark, you could actually still wind up being one of the titans of whatever your creative field is based on Soloit, right? I mean, this is a guy who went through Syracuse. Nobody who went to college with him thought, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be a household name. Oh, I know. They're all way, very surprised. And his idea was that if life and solutions come too easy for you, then that's a problem. That struggle is the key to great success. He felt there were other artists at Syracuse who were much more talented than he was in traditional ways of art. None of them ever became major artists. So I would say that that 20-some-year-old who is still trying to figure it out, that's what Saul was. He was always an outsider. He was always outside the lines of... (laughs) what people were teaching him. And as a young guy, when he got to New York, as I think David was alluding to earlier, he didn't want to do the stuff that was being done. He didn't want to do the happening stuff at that moment. He wanted to make his own stuff happen. Okay, I want to get one more of uh, our Kerry Smith conversations in here. And one of the things that might have happened if you were a fellow artist and you really got to know Saluit, which is what happened with Kerry. He went from that guy who maybe didn't care that much about Saluit, but thought he should do the, the drawing job to somebody who got more passionate about that art to somebody who really got to know Saul Lewitt very well. And here's what happens. He got in touch with me and he said, you know, these these loose watercolors that you're making right now or these prints that I saw over at this collector in West Hartford's house that I had made, you know, do you have, I'd like to get some of those. And And it turned out that he wanted to give as Christmas presents my work to his assistants, of which he had like generally seven, eight, nine, ten. And some funny things happened with that where he wanted the second time these loose watercolors that I was experimenting with. And I told him I didn't have very many of those, but that he could have what I had. And I said, well, I have some of these one line drawings. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll have some of those, too. And so then he said, what would you like in trade? And I said, well, I'm attracted to your originals, meaning gouaches. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, okay, I'll give you 10 gouaches. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I meant, because one of his gouaches would be worth more than my 10 prints or whatever it was. There were a bunch of very interesting and fun stories that happened about along that line. He was just extremely generous. The first time he came to our house for dinner, he had invited us to come down, my wife and our two kids, to come down to Chester and have dinner. And we went. And I didn't bring anything. I um, Maybe I brought a bottle of wine or something. I don't mm-hmm. remember. 
And then so we reciprocated and invited him to come to Farmington, and he brought a painting under his arm, framed. And I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, Kerry figured out he better step up his game. That d- generosity that's thing. Typi- that's so yeah. typical. Yeah. And I think you saw that, kind of that too, David, that notion of, like, he'd be willing to give his work away or, oh, Larry, sure. in your book, he'll forego commissions and stuff like that or make sure somebody else gets the money that they need. Yeah, or- I've heard the story over and over again. I wish I could have had the good fortune to meet him, but I I never did. But I've heard from many people that he would give, when he worked on exhibitions, he would give everyone involved a gift, uh, usually of a print or a gouache. Amazingly generous. And and, uh, and not only give away, but buy stuff. You know, in March uh, 1985, he had in his his diary his income for the month, which was $10,000, a little more than $10,000, an amazing amount for uh, one month in 1985. And his expenses, he listed his expenses, which were $9,100. He spent 91% of his income buying art from his colleagues Mm -hmm. and from young people. That's that's why he has so many devotees around the world. He's just so generous. So we're going to have to end the show. And I want to thank David and I want to thank Larry and Carrie and Andrea. (laughs) Thanks very much to Jonathan McNichol for pulling this whole thing together. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow in less for some reason we we don't show up.